Jake, can you believe it? Nope. That nor neither can I. As uh, fans listening may already realize, we're on that episode 99, which is about as close to 100 as you can get without your eyes getting wet. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we made it to the largest two-digit number possible. Welcome to Super Superstitious. The parallel podcast about the science behind the spooky and strange. I'm Jake. And I'm Wyatt, which means, yes, we're finally done. We're finished. Recording. For good. Episodes that are less than three digits. You guys didn't let us finish. That's right. <laughs> Specifically, every day I didn't let on. you finish. Yes, Jake didn't let me finish. So that's pretty much that. That's on all of you. We're here to uh, say goodbye mm-hmm. to double digit episodes. That's right. This is um, the last one. This is the last one. So that's it. And 99 is an auspicious number. It is. Uh, you probably already got it from the predetermined title that this probably has on it. I would imagine. But as this is the the year the Matrix came out episode of the show, <laughs> we're taking both the red and the blue pills today. We're wearing right. our sleekest leather trench coats. I dare say we're going to eat all the simulated steak, even though we know that it's uh, just the computers fucking us or something. <laughs> and we're going to download everything directly into our brains to punch really good. Maybe we'll do some spoon bending or whatever. Is that a thing? If there even is one. That's and right. we'll be doing this all at once and continuously forever until the episode ends. That's it's right. It's the Matrix, everybody. Yeah, we made it to the Happy Matrix. Happy Matrix. Happy Music Matrix, cue, everybody. <laughs> Play something here. <laughs> and of course, as part of today's celebratory, the year the Matrix came out, ep. We agreed ahead of time that we'd let the arcane computer device really stretch its legs using our brains as yeah. a kind of freewheeling sandbox. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jake, we've had this thing for just about a year now? Just about. We we first kind of uh, half-summoned, half-built it for our March Madness episode last uh, beginning of last April, I want to say. It's Indeed. the NCAA device. Mm-hmm. Since then, we added a program to it. The Patient Appreciation Neural Dive for Evaluation of Risk, or PANDER, as we call it, which allows us to uh, find out through the power of this computer, um, when plugged into our brains, what cryptid or other creature in the world each of our Patreon patrons needs to be on the lookout for. And do we also recall what NCAA stands for? The Nominal Cults Antagonism Association Analyzer. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Now I remember why we scratched that off and just left NCAA <laughs> on the side of the machine. Um, awesome. It was just, so, it was the label maker. It was just such a long strip <laughs> of tape on the side of it. It looked very yeah. just tacky, so we we went with the, shortened it. Yeah, um, but I dare say we leave it plugged in for the entire day in a very Matrix-like style. Yeah, so let's uh, go ahead um, and. Jam that in there right now. Yeah. Right in the base of the skull. Alrighty. Oh, it feels happy for being in there, I gotta say. It Um, does. And I do like that the um when we don't have on the panda function, it's whisper quiet. mm -hmm. For whatever reason that particular program requires a little bit more of whatever the uh cursed version of RAM is, and that makes it a little bit more audible, but for now, not so much. Yeah, it's it's dead silent. Although I do think when I go to type on it to ask it tell us about the matrix mm-hmm. you will have audibly heard me typing on keys that's right there will probably have been you'll you'll hear it it'll happen and there might be and, other uh, sounds that we'll hear them too and i know we'll hear them when they happen in real time so let me just hit enter here okay oh 
Uh, weirdly, it just entered the word matrix. Okay. And it does seem to be working. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I've got what feels like two topics that have just now been pretty much instantly put into my brain. I've got one. Hopefully that's okay. That's cool. Do we just go back and forth? I'm getting a weird kind of like message thing coming up too. I don't know how it even knows this because this is usually not something the computer does, but I have an update to get into first. Oh, let's go for it. It probably is, you know, wired right into your the very core of your brain. That makes sense. So it probably moment. just knows that I I have an update very. on the uh, the Phantom of the Chicago. Oh. So for first time listeners, or for those of you who just stopped caring and have forgotten, uh, the Phantom of the Chicago is the name we have given to uh, the creature or creatures sighted all throughout the greater Chicago area since 2017. Uh, looks like a big old humanoid bat monster, often with glowing red eyes, flying all over the place, frequently near the water. Totally real and often and reported on by scary. Uh, the website phantomsandmonsters.com. And it should it's just be Phantoms of the Chicago and Monsters. Yes. Uh, the proprietor of that particular website, Lon Strickler, who's been handling a lot of it. And uh, mm, yeah, I'm these, I have two reports here, each of which were submitted directly to Lon. Go figure. So I'm just going to launch right into it. <laughs> I regret that. Go on. No, no. Uh, no hi, regrets. Uh, hi, Lon. I've been meaning to reach out for some time now and finally am. I became aware of you from a Chicago Mothman video on YouTube around a year and a half ago. I've occasionally shared my story through the years, which isn't a whole lot with others, uh, when paranormal topics arise. My wife recently purchased Mothman Dynasty as a gift. That's a book that uh, Lon wrote in the last year mm. or so about all these sightings. Um, this guy sounds like a plant. Yeah. <laughs> I did feel it was very thoughtful. I'm roughly halfway through it. I also listened to a podcast by members of your team while extensively traveling last month. It'd be funny yeah. if they listened to our podcast and that was how they learned about it. <laughs> if we're, if they, if, oh my God. If they consider us members of his team. <laughs> yeah. Um, this show is done. <laughs> the slight difference between my story and many of the others in your book is the time frame. My setting was December 2007. It occurred about a mile or two past the Illinois state line from Wisconsin on I-90 southbound around 4 or 5 a.m. A decidedly pre-Phantom of the Chicago time. Yeah. So we did hear some stories that were from the early 2000s in that initial run. Uh, oh, did we? Yeah, I think in that first um, episode two, in fact, when we first talked about it, a solid uh, 97 episodes ago. Ooh. <laughs> God. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's, it's a story doing? that won't die. Um, I was very tired while making an attempt to travel from northern Minnesota to western New York with my son, who I picked up for the holidays. Having now moved to uh, Minnesota, I could say that's just driving from Minnesota to Chicago is a mistake. Um, <laughs> driving all the way to New York in a, a one straight run, that's such a long drive. A lawn, a lawn haul, if you will. Yes. I basically wasn't trying to pay for a hotel and did eventually stop at a rest area a couple of hours later, I believe. Uh, I saw a dark silhouette on my front left side in the darkness ahead and didn't really think anything of it until it came into my headlights. Mm-hmm. What I saw flew straight across the road, like a cross street, at a decent speed, but not in a flash. From what I recall, it was dark brown and it was possibly the length, top to bottom, as um, the same length as the width of my car. I don't recall hmm. a body, but I may be intentionally blanking it out. I saw a leather-like wing flapping down for sure. It mm-hmm. seemed oval. I don't recall a tail or head. 
the one picture being uh, the one picture behind the big Indian in Chicago may be the closest thing to what I recall. This is a reference to an older photo that I will show you in mm. a sec. Mm-hmm. Um, most descriptions in your book don't seem to represent what I saw. I say this because what I saw didn't fly fluidly or smoothly. It was awkward and far from the flap of an eagle. When it left my headlights view, I could see the same silhouette on my right in the dark. Mm. My first impression was something prehistoric, but not the wing of what I believe a pteranodon would look like. Ah, but there's your mistake, because if it existed, it would be modern or contemporary. <laughs> Another first impression that was immediate was the hair on the back of the neck, uh, my neck standing up, realizing I saw something unexplained. Mm-hmm. I was scared, but not terrified, and can't recall how long I stayed on the road after, but I do recall as long as I could. I did try an internet search a couple months later that had an interactive map, and the closest thing I found was a sighting probably 20 minutes south from mine. Somebody described an awkward flying creature flying away from them during dusk. That's about the closest description to my sighting I heard. Hmm. ST. So the um, the picture in question is uh, this. So there's this big statue hmm. thing, and then this thing over here. Looking like a person in a gliding wingsuit. Yes. That art is a very inland manta ray achieving... <laughs> Great, great altitude. They are known to jump out of the water. like They breach kind of like whales. For some reason. Uh, not always known to get quite that high, but, you know, it was an overachiever. Hey, can't make it unless you swim for it. That's right. Yeah, an overachieving <laughs> manta ray. That's right. Um, so that is one update. Uh, the second update. Now cool, we can cool. be sure this owl. guy... Let's go he, on. Yep. And this guy was definitely totally not um, having any problems for being awake for so long, driving for so long. That wouldn't have any effect on his cognition. It would have distorted his ability to see the world around him, see an owl fly past his car, get a boner in his air, stand on end, get scared. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lon says, I recently talked to a witness, JL, who had a UFO experience and period. Then later, a winged humanoid (laughs) encounter at the same location. Unpack that JL or whoever it was. (laughs) On the evening of January 1st, 2000, JL and her son were traveling on Spring Creek Road just east of Rockford, Illinois. As they approached Beaver Creek, they both observed a large diamond-shaped craft hovering above the creek. The craft was brightly lit, and there was a distinct beam of light coming from the bottom towards the creek. Mm. Uh, JL slowed the car, and the craft suddenly cut off the beam. At the same time, the craft slowly ascended into the night sky. Jail and her son had lingering dreams after the incident and both started to notice paranormal activity around them. (laughs) Then on October night... All uh, at once. Yeah. Then on an October night in 2002, at around 8 p.m., Jail was again driving on Spring Creek Road near Beaver Creek. She observed a winged shape uh, approaching her head-on. By the time this flying anomaly got near her, it swooped up and over the car. JL states that the winged being was humanoid in shape with two leg-like structures trailing below it. The wingspan was so wide that it literally blocked out all the street lights. Wow. She estimates that it was six feet in height, black in color, and had large wings approximately 12 feet in total width. Mm-hmm. She immediately stopped the car, got out, and looked down the road behind her. The winged being had, had vanished, but she noticed that the trees were moving as if a huge gust of wind had gone through them. She also stated that the being never flapped its wings. It seemed to be propelled by an unknown force. Mm. Jail has experienced a sense of consternation and anxiety ever since the <laughs> incident, even though she now lives in Tennessee. Excuse me. She now lives Tennessee. She now lives Tennessee. She's living yes. that Tennessee. That's right. Life? 
Uh, spooky. Yeah. So that's uh, okay. That made the um. There. I don't know if you're seeing. I'm seeing a little like red notification in this corner of my field of vision. There were like a, a number two, like on a little flag, and they've both yes. gone away now. No, so, I saw that yeah. as well. I wasn't going to say anything about it. So that's cool. I guess that's what I needed to take care of. So that's that's uh, a couple. That's kind of resolving. A couple updates. Yeah, um, it feels nice to have that sort of sorted, and um, I'm also weirded out now having that sort of heads-up display experience yeah, augmenting I, <laughs> our reality as we sit here. It's helpful in some ways, but a little disconcerting yeah. in others. We've never really left it plugged in for this long, so uh, well, uh, we'll interested see to see where it goes. Yeah. yeah. I do want to mention, before we get too much further into the show, that I'm enjoying a very nice beer on this fine day. I'm enjoying a very nice beer too, but our show was not brought to you by the beer I'm drinking, but by so the beer you're drinking. <laughs> but yes, uh, I think I can speak for both of us in wanting to introduce all of our listeners to Four Phantoms, mm-hmm. which is a new brewery in East Hampton, Massachusetts, in North America, who also just so happens to make beer. <laughs> That's right. I'm currently quaffing one called Speedwolf. Well, you're not quaffing it, you're drinking it. Oh, that's true. I'm we'll quaff it later. Good distinction. Yes. Not today. We're, we're going to quaff something else later today. You're right. <laughs> and I don't. I I I totally know what it is because we we have it here with us. We have it now, here with us. In, we didn't drink it months possibly ago. months ago <laughs> because that would be insane. Uh-huh. And that will happen. And I can't wait to see what it is and have you pour it through the thing or somehow be in the same room with you when sure, we drink yes. it. For great. now, though, I'm drinking Speed Wolf, which is very delicious. It's a vanilla latte stout. Oof. I remember don't when you wish you had one, Jake? I truly do. When reading through the different beers that they currently offer, that was at the top of my list of ones I want to try, and I cannot wait to get back there and try them. It is a very good. But unlike Jake, currently you have to be anywhere in New England, especially in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, if you want to get your hands on a physical can of this very good spooky metal beer. Also, I want to mention, if you're anywhere near New England in the later summer, please consider hitting up the RPM Fest yes. 2020, which is self-described as the heaviest party of the summer, which could either mean very sad or very loud. <laughs> RPM probably stands for, what would you think, Jake, really popular music? Uh, runs Padded Men? No, that's not right. Hmm. I will go with yours. Okay. Uh, but yes, they are a metal festival park and stay. If you are anywhere near Montague, Massachusetts from September 4th to the 6th this coming year, Four Phantoms will be making a beer especially for RPM Fest and will donate a portion of that beer sales to local school music programs, which is pretty rad. Awesome. They, I will say, they may have already picked a name out for this beer, I'm not sure, but I'm going to go ahead and ask listeners, including yourself, Jake, to submit names anyhow, <laughs> and we can read one or two a week, or if no one submits any, I'll just keep thinking of some. Yeah. Send your beer name suggestions to contact at superduperstitious.com. And uh, I'll kick it off with the name Bardcore, Ooh. which is both fanciful, kind of uh, D&D vibes, <laughs> and plays into the metal vibe. But should and also, also be, your alma mater. And is also my alma mater. I went to Bard College. <laughs> But should, because I'm now a bard, <laughs> um, and, uh, but also should be easily topped. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the slightest the effort. Enough. <laughs> uh, the reason we're bringing this up now is because we were told to, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the reason we're bringing it up now is because tickets generally go on sale in the spring. Um, although they may have early bird deals before then, so stay tuned and we'll let you know as the episodes come out what the deal is with that. Oh, most definitely. And again, if you're anywhere near the neighborhood, check out Four, Four Phantoms. Phantoms Brewery. All right, so where in the goddamn fuck were we? <laughs> I think we're about to jump into... Dear, we go back and forth and I kick us off? Yeah. All right, well... One of the two things that has been installed in my brain is the abridged history of the trench coat, <laughs> which is a hilarious sounding concept, I realize, but one that actually provides, I think, some useful insight into the costuming choices in The Matrix. Mm. So allow me to regale you. Do you already know the history of the trench coat? Jake, I do not. I'm looking forward to into this. No, I'm looking forward to learning about this. All right, because it was downloaded into your brain, not mine. Interestingly this enough, this is true. This is true. But you may have had, uh, you know, extant knowledge of this prior to leaving this device plugged in, which I have to say is beginning to feel a little too comfortable. Mm-hmm. So the trench coat that we are all familiar with and afraid of today. <laughs> <laughs> is, in some ways, emblematic of the unique moment in history that World War I occupies mm-hmm. when everything from rigidly held social structures to military organization to fashion was in upheaval. It is both a product of this time as well as a symbol of it. Quote, It's the result of the scientific innovation, technology, mass production, the story of the trench coat is a very modern story, unquote, says Dr. Jane Tynan, lecturer in design history at Central St. Martin's University of the Arts, London, and author of British Army Uniform and the First World War, Men in Khaki. Sounds like mm-hmm. a hot read. Mm-hmm. So as early as 1823, weatherproofed outerwear for both civilian and military use was in its infancy. The technology of the time basically involved dipping whole clothes in waterproof resin, which was good at keeping rain out, but also great at keeping stinky sweat (laughs) very much in. (laughs) And it had, apparently, a distinctive and unpleasant smell of its own, (laughs) Um, which makes me think... It's only too bad that Yankee Candle did not exist at the time because they probably could have <laughs> made some money off of that process. Yes. Uh, regardless, there was a market. Like, like lower, oh, yeah, go on. Uh, excuse me, I can't say it. Instead of just constantly smelling like La Brea, tar, uh, La Brea tar pits. I couldn't have. Or, you know what? Could have. <laughs> Said it better myself. <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, I'm dead serious. Uh, so... <laughs> Still, there was a market for these weatherproofed, uh, quote-unquote weatherproofed, mm-hmm. <laughs> outerwares, which combined with the fabric's shortcomings, inspired clothiers to develop better, more breathable, waterproofed textiles. Mm-hmm. Enter Thomas Burberry, who is at this time a 21-year-old draper from Basingstoke, Hampshire. Basingstoke? 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 Bazingstoke seems like it's probably the one. Bazingstoke, Hampshire, <laughs> who founded his eponymous menswear business, Burberry, in 1856. In 1879, I will mention as well, this is all adapted from a Smithsonian article all right. on trench coats, 
1879, inspired by the lanolin-coated waterproof smocks worn by Hampshire shepherds. He invent you know when that happens? Oh yeah. You ever just get inspired by those things? <laughs> he invented I think about I think about those shepherds a lot and the things oh, every, that they almost every day make me strive for. Mm-hmm. Especially lanolin they wear. smocks. Exactly. Nothing nothing hotter than coming home just dressed in nothing but a lanolin coated <laughs> waterproof smock, if you ask me. But yes, he invented gabardine. A breathable yet waterproofed twill made by coating individual strands of cotton or wool fiber rather than the whole fabric. Mm. So, good call. Uh, with the fabric, the factories, and the major designers in place, it was only a matter of time before the trench coat took shape. And, I will say, to this day, if you search Gabardine, G-A-B-A-R-D-I-N-E, the first suite of images will be that of trench coats. Mm. So, at this time, 1860s, warfare was, as they say, Napoleonic. Such as people in very bright clothing walking within punching distance and then <laughs> shooting guns at each other. <laughs> Usually in formation, as I recall. In formation, yes. Uh, so, in these scenarios, brightly colored uniforms helped commanders identify their infantry troops. So it may seem ridiculous to us now, but when you have smoke of many poorly built guns and cannons going off, it's hard to see who you are trying to tell what to do. Uh, but with the technological advancements in long-range arms in place even by the 1850s, this kind of warfare had quickly become impractical and deadly. So these bright garish uniforms basically just made you what we would consider huge targets today. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, military tactics needed to adapt to this new reality. So did uniforms. The color we all know as khaki, which would come to dominate British military uniforms, was developed following military lessons learned by imperialist Brits in India. The word khaki meaning dust in Hindi. I did not know that. Hmm. By the 1890s, khaki and camouflage had spread throughout the mil uh, British military, uh, having rep uh, repeatedly proven its value in allowing soldiers to more effectively blend in with their surroundings. So the British military was in some ways slow to change overall. Bizarrely, mustaches for officers, I never knew this, were <laughs> compulsory. What? Compulsory <laughs> until 1916. Huh. Yes. The it's year before the movie that happened recently? <laughs> what? The year before the oh, movie. Oh, yes. The year before the movie that happened recently, indeed. From 1860 to 1916. So, 1860 to 1916. Over 50 years, <laughs> members of the British military were obliged to put some shag on their upper lip. Huh. That is not even a joke. If they could. If they couldn't grow one, they were probably just bullied and teased. <laughs> To no end. Draw it on. They would just draw it on. <laughs> they would tape it on or glue it on. Yep. But by World War One, especially with the advent of chemical weaponry, um, a lot of these dress codes fell away. And in their place was an increasing recognition that uniforms needed to disappear into the landscape, allow for fluid, unencovered movement, and be adaptable to fighting in uneven terrain. And there was a need for, like, looking for a closed seal for a gas yes. mask, right? That I do believe we have chemical weaponry to thank for the loss of mustaches. <laughs> Just other facial kinds hair of facial in hair. Yes, indeed. It's good to remember if you've not seen the movie 
about the year after 1916, the terrain that British military outfitters were designing for even early in the war was essentially disgusting holes in the ground. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Trenches, if you've never heard of them, were networks of narrow, deep ditches open to the elements. They smelled of both the unwashed living bodies crammed in there, if you know what I'm saying, and the dead ones (laughs) buried close by. Very gross. They were, yeah. (laughs) Um, They were muddy and filthy and gross and horrible, and they made life in the trench, where soldiers would typically spend several days at a stretch, if not more, an exhausting and unsanitary experience, even in the quietest and most uneventful of times. But that was more so like on the British side right because the german ones were really well built weren't they oh yeah the germans had this figured out which is why trench coats were not invented in germany (laughs) they were they were they were trimming down over there my understanding was part of the deal was that um in france they're like no don't fuck up the landscape so make temporary trenches the Mm -hmm. british like okay we'll just make holes they can be filled back in and the germans coming in like we're gonna make these right we don't care if they last forever and we're gonna just make them good yeah we like living comfortably even in war so and not suffering unnecessarily exactly but right as you have accurately described it was to deal with these conditions that the trench coat was designed uh quote this was really the modernizing of military dress it was becoming utilitarian functional camouflaged a very modern approach to warfare says tynan um, so at first, it turns out trench coats were basically reserved for officers or anyone of higher rank, which I thought is kind of cool. Hmm. So basic infantry were made to wear military issue uniforms, but officers were allowed and even encouraged to essentially get really high fashion with their outfits, hmm. which um, the thinking at the time was that this would reinforce hierarchy and status among the uh, unit the more stylish the more important they are quite so um and so to this end officers called on firms like burberry and aquascutum and a handful of others who marketed themselves as military outfitters and it's notable that these companies also tended to be the firms that made active sporting wear for aristocratic gentlemen Mm -hmm. and so this was like super synergistic because it tailored nicely with the image the British military wanted to convey. War was hell, but it was also a sporty, masculine, outdoorsy pursuit. <laughs> Both a pleasure and a duty. <laughs> hell looks good. Yeah, I may die, but I'm going to look good doing it. Um, so birth, both Burberry and Aquascutum take credit for the trench coat, and it's apparently unclear who really was the first. And honestly... Who among us gives a shit? (laughs) Regardless, by 1916, just as British officers were shaving their flavor savers, the term trench coat was adopted, appearing in a tailoring uh, tailoring trade journal accompanied by three patterns for making the increasingly popular weatherproof coats. The stylistic elements that people are drawn to today are anchored pretty much to a piece in military utility of the era, from helping slough off rain to carriage of gear, maps, and other things like this. The accessibility and popularity of the trench coat bloomed into the mid-20th century and gradually became a statement piece for men and women alike, Mm -hmm. military or otherwise. At the time, civilians wearing a military coat uh, were interpreted as 
basically acting in patriotic solidarity with the war effort. So it was kind of like, you know, wearing what we might consider military fatigues in some Hmm. regard at the time. Uh, Moving towards World War II, the trench coat got yet another boost from Hollywood. Uh, So hard-bitten detectives, gangsters, men of the world, femme fatales, all wore the trench, Hmm. which lent a romantic, independent air to the garb. So very, you know, devil-may-care, tough, self-possessed people, characters were associated with this. Forget it, Wyatt. It's trench coats. I don't even oh know my what. god! What a what a cut! If anyone can <laughs> gather together, Chinatown uh, simultaneously, it was able to maintain its aristocratic high status vibe. So before long, trench coat was equally appropriate on the shoulders of Charles, Prince of Wales, and heir to the British throne, as it was, as the article is written to say, on Rick Deckard. <laughs> bounty hunter and if you don't know handsome toaster oven from ridley scott's 1982 future noir blade runner <laughs> and there's just a little bit more in this article for all you diehard fashionistas out there but who the fuck cares and i know it literally all of you are screaming at your phones or in your cars right now Wyatt, where can i find me a trench coat that looks just like the ones from the matrix and will let me flip around Without my shades falling off my face. Well, <laughs> I'll pass your annoying question off to Del Sandine, writing for men's fashion dot love to know dot slash. Oh, sorry, goddamn. Dot slash. Um, writing for men's fashion dot love to know dot com slash matrix style trench coats. Mm. Who says, besides a compelling story that entertains. The Matrix trilogy also features incredibly stylish, futuristic garb. Black has never been as fashionable as it was on the clothes that Neo and his companions sported in their dark underworld. Which, pretty sure Kate Beckinsale would have something to say about that, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) If Keanu Reeves as Neo is one of your favorite movie characters, you might want to find Matrix-style trench coats to emulate some of the coolest cinema fashions in recent history this article was probably written a while ago so some basics of matrix style trench coats aka how to wear a coat that will guarantee people call the cops on you the second you approach a public space (laughs) be sure to find coats that are black these fit in with the dark theme of the films and as del sandine says because they lived underground, <laughs> Neo and his companions needed clothing that wouldn't show dirt readily, but it was probably a cinematic device to make the characters appear cooler as well. You know, they did live underground, but they only wore the trench coats when they were in the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god. So, a true fan... The next feature, concerningly even dangerously long. (laughs) I may have written that myself. While average trench coats can come to the knee or slightly below, the Matrix-style coats were considerably longer. Morpheus's and Neo's coats fall to the floor. The long length adds to a taller, more intimidating appearance. Again, good to get arrested to. None of the coats had belts. Like the typical trench coats, instead, they hung straight down. And finally, highly structured. 
The coats and clothes you see in the Matrix films are minimalist and highly tailored. There are no fancy embellishments drawing the eye away from the crisp, clean lines. Mm-hmm. This stark minimalism applies especially to the coats that the characters wear and fits in with a survivalist theme, <laughs> which we all know the Matrix movies carried in spades. That's right. And that is pretty much the full download that I have for trench coats <laughs> that I was not expecting, but Excellent. I'm happy to have received from the computer. <laughs> A very pleasant surprise, and I think very informative for all of us. Uh, Jake, do you want to go next, or dare we do another thing? <laughs> <laughs> I think before I uh, reveal what I have had downloaded into my brain, maybe we should... Uh, have a drink of this here beer that isn't the one we already have had. Oh, I forget even what it is because it is yeah. just out of sight. I would just have to turn my head and I'll be right there. Yeah, let's... We absolutely have to get to a little bit of uh, the, the quack. Quack. <laughs> <laughs> And here we are. It's, it's the, the quaff. And if you guys don't know what the quaff is, uh, Jake and I, we drink beer most episodes, which is to say we drink beer every episode. Mm-hmm. And we finally got around to figuring on assessing those beers in a formal way using three qualities. Everyone Universal, knows. yeah. These are universally agreed upon. You can find them anywhere. Um, they include... Physicality. <laughs> there it is. How the beer is. What does it look like? How does it look? Uh, and what does the appearance seem to be? In other words, what does it look like? Yeah. <laughs> Both its bottle or can and the beer itself. Uh, chuggability, which is basically how fast can you drink this beer? Does you it know. taste good? Does it taste is it kind of a sipper? Tasty is it a chugger? And um, the most important and the one that requires you know no the least introduction from us. honestly. Yeah. So today we have from Wunderkammer beer. Let there be Wunder. That's just cute. Let there be wonder. It's an ale brewed with sumac, uh-huh. which is cool because that's where the bee that we study sumac, lives inside. Saratana yeah. Calcarada likes to burrow into the broken off stems of pithy things like sumac, and that's one of the reasons I got that. I thought I liked the um, label on it, but I also liked the fact that it was sumac. I figured you and I should drink some sumac beer. You did good. Well, let's get right to it. What do we think of the physicality of the bottle so far? I think it's pretty fun. It caught my attention enough to buy it. It's got just some neat artwork. It's a bottle, which is always exciting since those are rarer and rarer these days. Mm-hmm. The snake coming out of a skull on that side. That's interesting. <laughs> Very playful illustration style. Yeah. Uh, textured label. yelling, let there be Wunter. <laughs> In a sort of uh, cuckoo clock fashion, yeah. popping out of some dude's chest, sort of a Cronenberg-ish <laughs> monster. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm going to give this a physicality of, well, let me wait until I Let's see the beer. Wait until you see the beer, yeah. So you let me open this. Pop it open. Ah. <laughs> Cold groin opening of the beer. All right, so now a pour of now the I'm beer. Now I'm going to pour it. A nice little glug on that. 
So he was mine. Somehow still a little unpleasant. <laughs> I think you got most of the yeast. Oh god. Wow. We might have to pause and mix. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Okay. Alright, so we have mixed the beer and poured it again. Now we have a pretty consistent looking uh Bowdy. Yeah, both of them, which is a nice kind of uh, light hazy and light with some haziness to it. Yeah. So with that I guess we'll give it a physicality of a uh I'm gonna give it a six. I was going to say, I was about to give this bad boy a 25. Jesus. But now I'm giving it 7. That's fine. That's fine. No, I'm just kidding. Let's try it. Ooh, it's tart. Mmm. Oh, very tart. Almost cider-ish, to be honest. Really is, yeah. Um. Wow. wow. I'm guessing the sourness probably largely comes from the sumac. Because sumac tends uh, to have yes. kind of a more... Citrusy, soury taste. Yes. Fermented with mixed culture and aged in oak. So I the mixed it. culture probably gives it the kind of more wild ale style to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not to be confused with wild style from the <laughs> Lego movie. Oh, I don't know what that is. It's fine. What is Lego? I'm going to call this, uh, given the, the tart, it's not like a full blown, blown like kettle sour or something where it's like a total cheek pucker and oh, oh no. Uh, <laughs> But it is still sour enough that I'm going to give it a chuggability of maybe a one. I actually feel like I can drink this pretty quick. Oh, you're just gone. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm going to give it a chuggability of eight. Wow. <laughs> and now, of course, for the Jeremy. Cuckoo clock. Cuckoo clock. And I'm going to say German bees. And this has been the, the Quaff. <laughs> Well, that was fun, and I forget what it was that we drank because it was so I fun. drank it so quickly, and, and we did that together, and that was normal, and that was fun as canon. well. And now it is your turn, I believe, Jake. It is. All righty. So the topic that I received from the machine—that's a topic that I hope <laughs> is maybe relevant anyway. It um it begins here with an, uh, the abstract of a 2003 paper by Nick Bostrom. Ooh, it says quote. This paper argues that at least one of the following propositions is true. 1. The human species is very likely to go extinct before reaching a post-human stage. Oh boy, 2. Here we go. Any post-human civilization is, ext is extremely unlikely to run a significant number of simulations of, the, of their evolutionary history, or variations thereof. Or 3. We are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. It follows that the belief that there is a significant chance that we will one day become post-humans who run ancestor simulations is false unless we are currently living in a simulation. Mm -hmm. A number of other consequences of this result are also discussed. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking about today is simulation theory or the simulation Very hypothesis. Good. Or in yes. other words, are we living in a simulation? Yes. The end. All right. Back to you, Wyatt. <laughs> All right, so my next thing is... <laughs> uh, the main idea behind all of this is that uh, technological advancement can theoretically progress to the point where a person's entire consciousness can be put into a computer. And even further, to the point where all life experiences can also be programmed into said ultra-powerful computer. So thus, uh, Bostrom suggests that either we'll never reach this point, or we might reach this point but not bother recreating the experience of human life even though we could, Mm -hmm. Or else we could, and we did, and this is it. Uh, so to clarify that a little more, mm. a technologically mature post-human civilization would have enormous computing power. 
if even a tiny percentage of them were uh, to run what he's calling ancestor simulations, so super detailed, realistic simulations of ancestral life that would be indistinguishable from reality to the simulated ancestor, just really mm-hmm. good virtual reality, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the total number of simulated ancestors in the universe, or multiverse, if it exists, would greatly exceed the total number of actual ancestors. So, to, Whoa, un- to, un- what? to unpack that, if folks many years from now uh, develop the technology to allow themselves to live in a virtual world made to look like the past, there would be mm-hmm. more simulated people in that computer program than there would be people actually entering it. So the idea is if you, if you wanted to go into a virtual world, mm-hmm. um, then if it's populated by a bunch of people, probably there aren't, if you want to have like, you know, oh, here's the entire world as it was whenever this was, most of the people populating that world are probably just simulated because unless you had that many people all going together into the world to look at how it was, but then how would they know what it's supposed to be like and act like and stuff, so... Probably um, most of the people are simulations, unless, I guess, the technology were used for some sort of giant social media type of thing. I don't know how dystopic shit's supposed to get. Maybe it's going to be like a uh, Ready Player One type of thing. I don't know. But otherwise, it's probably... The idea is that if there were a simulated you know, version of the past, um, most of the people in that simulation would all be themselves simulations and not individuals also experiencing this kind of projection. So you're saying they would be purely fabricated computer components? Yes. Not actually people reliving or re-experiencing it would be the simulation purely of the history? fabricated for some people to go back in and right. experience. And so the idea is that most likely most of the people are Are you talking like their fabricated. consciousness would become f- fabricated? Their consciousness would probably be real and they could go in and just like experience what life was like in the past. But all that past experience itself was simulated. That's my understanding. Mm. And so to so kind of fill that world around them. In a sense, the Matrix is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his paper, Bostrom claims that if a third of those three propositions um, is one that's true, and almost all people with our kind of experiences live in simulations, then we are almost certainly living in a simulation. Oh, my God. So in more of his words, this is another quote, uh, it could be the case that the vast majority of minds like ours did not belong to the original race, but rather to people simulated by the advanced descendants of an original race. It is then possible to argue that, if this were the case, we would be rational to think that we are likely among the simulated minds rather than among the original biological ones. So the bottom line there is that if there's a big old simulation of the world, not everyone gets to be the protagonist, and odds are much higher that most of us are, like I guess, random NPCs. Mm-hmm. But it's such a detailed simulation that we still have thoughts and everything seems as the like just like it's real. Mm-hmm. So to expand on this a little more, I have some stuff from BuiltIn.com, which is a technology news, things like that. Mm-hmm. This type of post-human simulator in question would need sufficient computing power to keep track of the detailed belief states of in all human brains at all times. Why? Because it would essentially need to sense observations of birds, cars, etc., before they happened and provide simulated detail of whatever it was about to be observed. Oh, yeah. In the event of a simulation breakdown, the director, whether a teenager or a giant-headed alien, could simply edit the states the only, of... The only two options. Yes. Uh, edit the states of any brains that have become aware of an anomaly before it spoils the simulation. Alternatively, the director could skip back a few seconds and rerun the simulation in a way that avoids the problem. Sounds like that director fell the fuck asleep. Yes. Uh, so the idea is 
meant to be. Okay, if there are glitches, it can be kind of corrected for, but not everything's going to run perfectly smoothly. Mm-hmm. People are really into this idea. Like, I had heard it a number of times before now, before having it downloaded in my brain, um, including shit <laughs> like Elon Musk saying he's pretty sure we're living in a simulation. Uh, specifically, right. Musk said that the odds we're not living in a simulation is one in billions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very relatedly, there is a totally understandable appeal to this if you are a selfish prick. If you're truly living in a simulation, your actions don't really matter. Right. So either you're living in a world that is created entirely for you, so you can do mm-hmm. whatever you want, and you should, mm-hmm. or else you're just a meaningless cog, in which case, again, no consequences to what you do. I think they call this the reboot conundrum. Yes. If you'll remember the CG animated series from the late 90s or mid 90s probably no one does i may be the only person and maybe i dreamed it maybe that's just a simulation for me anyway (laughs) it Um, was if you don't know because i get the sense you don't (laughs) very quickly followed non-player characters in a reality inside of the computer in which Uh whole game states would like to send on their little world like giant frightening cubes from the sky that would mm. like impose rules onto their world and they'd have to fight the player who was always like a murdering machine or something horrifying mm. and so we were meant to relate to these these beings inside of this other universe that was always being changed by whatever kind of thing the the user was trying to do interesting it's actually a pretty decent concept for a show it was it was not too bad i have to say i'm kind of laughing at it because it is very much from that beast wars era of uh (laughs) cgi entertainment where by today's standards you'd probably look at it and recoil but as a kid you're like wow (laughs) my mind is blown anyway carry on there's a lot we could ask about this stuff like why the fuck and perhaps who gives a shit but (laughs) let's just humor the idea and look at how likely it could possibly be I'll be sticking with builtin.com from here on out. Uh, Please. Which says, we're likely not there yet, but Rizwan Verk, a tech entrepreneur and author of The Simulation Hypothesis, thinks we will be at some point. Because mm. there are 10 checkpoints on the road to full-blown simulation, um, mm. which he told Built-in, and we're nearly halfway to our destination. Um, but there are also major barriers ahead, he said, namely what are called brain-computer interfaces. So I think we can hold off on telling him about our arcane computer for now, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Verk mentioned the renowned physicist John Wheeler, who worked with Albert Einstein decades ago. In his lifetime, Wheeler said, physics had evolved from the premise that everything is a particle to everything is information. He also coined a phrase that's well-known in scientific circles, it from bit, meaning everything is based on information. A whole lot of what all these people are getting at can be summed up in this quote by theoretical physicist David Baum. Mm. He says, quote, Reality is what we take to be true. What we take to be true is what we believe. What we believe is based upon our perceptions. What we perceive depends on what we look for. What we look for depends on what we think. What we think depends on what we perceive. What we perceive determines what we believe. What we believe determines what we take to be true. What we take to be true is our reality. Boom. Or dare I say, boom. <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> so really the conclusion here is that reality is only as real as what our senses tell us but then again the point of evolving senses is to perceive shit so mm. 
a lot of that is is like oh it's it's meant to be circular on purpose it's like mm-hmm. oh you know we what is real to us is just what we can tell and we can only tell it's real because that's what we perceive and so it's like yeah it's the only thing we can the, actually yeah. we can only tell what there is based on what we're able to tell but there's also you know, there's, there's things we can't perceive at least on a biological level typically right. these things don't matter so for example humans can't see anything in the ultraviolet range even though birds can i think certainly bees and things can mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we've never had any evolutionary reason to need that and that's fine so it's there's stuff that there's that's there that we can't perceive but it doesn't affect our lives in any meaningful way so people just have to start getting killed by sunburns <laughs> yes but um the limits of our perceptions for the most part really don't affect our lives because they those perceptions exist based on what our reality has always been it's kind mm-hmm. of if you want to look at evolution as a thing that has programmed life in a certain way we have been programmed to our circumstances so mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. is real for us is what we can tell mm-hmm. so now based on all of this can you see any problems with the idea of the entirety of reality being a simulation from a computer what well in some sense no <laughs> it sort of doesn't matter in a weird way sure but what about just logistically how how do you think it would work out for a computer to simulate every single thing that happens in the universe i mean that would be quite the incredible computer <laughs> and i don't know what else to say okay <laughs> one thing that comes on one thing that comes to mind for me is the fact that physics and by extension chemistry and by extension biology all that shit works like we know how it works on a very fundamental level a molecular level a subatomic level all this stuff and uh how the actual fuck would a computer simulate say all the ongoing cellular processes of a single living thing at any given time or even a handful of atoms just all the stuff that that, those things can do and then imagine a computer like simulating that all we have to do is dip into uh conspiratorial logic to justify that one true (laughs) which is that it only ever simulates the results of those observations when they're actually called for at all their <laughs> all their times it's just running the program <laughs> uh another thing from built in is that it was widely thought the simulation hypothesis had been disproven once and for all when in 2017 physicists zohar ringel and dmitry kovirzi published an article in the uh, journal science advances entitled quantized gravitational responses the sign problem and quantum complexity so here's the catch their work was at most indirectly relevant to simulation which zohar later dismissed as not even a scientific question specifically they proved Mm -hmm. that a classical computing technique called quantum monte carlo which is Mm -hmm. used to simulate to simulate quantum particles photons electrons and other types of particles that comprise the universe was insufficient to simulate a quantum computer itself holy shit they can run that kind of thing they're, yeah, they're able to use this one technique to simulate or to try and simulate those types of things. Monte Carlo makes me think iterative runs of a certain process. I believe that is the idea. And they were trying and to so see if it's possible quantum. to simulate a quantum computer, which is something that people have wanted to make. Oh uh, to God. see if it's even possible to simulate one, which yeah, if they could, that'd be a breakthrough that would negate the need to physically build these next level machines, which is no easy task. But if they could even If they could simulate a quantum computer, we wouldn't necessarily have to build one. We could just like, oh, here's one in the simulation. We could actually use that. Oh, but, my um, God. Which is hard to wrap my head around as a humble biologist. I similarly am struggling to understand how one could simply simulate something that seems beyond the simulation. Hmm. 
I'm not totally sure about that, but trying to feel <laughs> found that even the basics of it was impossible to um, to uh, to to simulate. And if it's impossible to simulate a quantum computer, forget about simulating the whole universe. Right. So per Cosmos. No, certainly that would yeah. be incredible. Uh, quote, the researchers calculated that just storing information about a couple of hundred electrons would require a, co- a computer memory that would physically require more atoms than exist in the universe. <laughs> That's kind of beautiful, actually. So based on that, I guess, ta-da? Well, again, to dip into my conspiratorial logic, <laughs> the atoms of the universe that we know are simply the atoms within the simulation, which are by their nature limited. <laughs> And so, and so it keeps on going. It keeps on going. But no, we are not living in a simulation. Or you can take it as we are living in a simulation, which is whatever our brains and senses can interpret of mm-hmm. the reality that we are experiencing, which ultimately comes back to the simulation of your own mind, which is fallible, gullible, and great. And that's that how deep the rabbit hole goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jake, I... Uh, would like to talk about the other, I have a basically like a flashing exclamation point right in the center of my vision. Yeah, I'm seeing it too, which is weird because it seems like it affects you more than me. But even more distracting than that is the kind of general sense of dread and, and mortal terror that I'm getting from these other artifacts <laughs> that are surrounding us right now. I didn't even notice it until you mentioned it, but I have one of the wheels in my room and I've noticed that the coin has begun... It's appearing uh, and disappearing. Yeah. So I think it's time for a round of uh, Shadow Hands Roulette. So Shadow Hands Roulette is a game that we play and have a, a, such a fun time playing where um, <laughs> we have a coin, a cursed coin, which we got some time ago. Um, started out the size of, I think, a, a standard American quarter. Now is couple cubits across maybe thereabouts yeah it's a little bit larger than a standard trash can lid mm-hmm. which is a universal that's the si unit for uh, for diameter i think we flip the coin to determine which of two prices right showcase showdown wheels we spin the coin itself currently because we are separated by about 1400 miles the coin is phasing back and forth very quickly between our two apartments. It seems to be soul-bound to us yes. collectively. Um, we do, it seems, each have one of the wheels. I have the dreaded wheel of states kind of hovering behind me now to sort of lightly crawling. Mine is the, uh, of course, dreaded wheel of other countries. A disgusting know wheel of other countries. Smell. Or yes, the repulsive wheel, I should say. There it is, yes. One of us flips the coin, decides which wheel is going to be spun. The other one spins that wheel and sees uh, which place we're going to go to. Go to the Shadowlands.net, an ancient website full of terrifying tales. <laughs> exactly. We, and uh, we flip the we flip the wheel. Roll the coin. We spin the wheel. We roll the coin, then we flip the wheel. We, we spin the wheel to determine which of those places we will read from. We read a story at random, verbatim, and attempt to uh, maintain our sanity and sense of calm in the mm-hmm. face of what is essentially unimpeachably terrifying tale. Yes. Without further ado, would you like to go first or should I? Let me go first today. All right. Let me just try to catch this coin. Okay. Ha! It's, it's, hmm. Well, that's very fast. I still see, Maybe yeah, it's, it's going faster than I remember. Ha! Ooh. Should I try it? Maybe I should try to catch it and then, oh, I can't give it to you. Why I don't, don't you try, try it? Nope. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> Jesus. 
thing is, okay, I don't, I don't know. Well, but I've got. You got you know, a wheel. I got a wheel. Spin. We could just spin them. I think I'm it'll just be okay. Spin it. All right, Let go ahead. You're gonna spin, spin the repulsive wheel of other countries. You know what? I kind of feel weird about it, but I'm gonna take the mic with me. Oh, interesting. You got the cord long enough? I think. Yeah, actually, yeah. I gave I you that the longer cord, so. Yeah, you gave me that 300 foot long cord. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I figured and, I would uh, need it. Here we go. Walking on over. Okay. Big old wheel. Let me climb up here. Yep. Oh yeah. It's weird to have the mic. Yeah, I think there's other practical reasons why we usually hand the other person the other mic <laughs> related to uh, where to hold the mic while climbing the wheel. Why do you say that, Jake? I can't hear you at all. So, here we go. All right, you're uh, up was there. that okay for you, Jake? Sure. That was some very Ooh. high quality audio. And uh, you want to go ahead and spin it? Absolutely. Here we go. Woo! All right. Okay. I'm it's getting going. away from the wheel. And it's landing on. And Puerto Rico. There are not that many stories. So I will tell one from San Juan. Aha. Uh -huh. Old Condado Beach Hotel and Casino. This was a very old structure built at the turn of the century by Vanderbilt and now closed. Employees working the night shift always were spooked went around the area of the service elevator on the sixth floor. Security personnel, when bumping into room service or housekeeping employees, always used to scare each other on this floor, something that never happened on other floors. Mm -hmm. This being that as soon as you stepped on this floor, you felt the strangest, overpowering feeling you have ever experienced. It was a combination of sadness and evil all together in one this was because of the hauntings of the lady in white oh it was said that she was a relative of one of the victims of the dupont plaza fire hmm. next sentence and could not take <laughs> the tragic death of a loved one in that fire and threw herself down the shaft of the service elevator of the condado beach oh boy Employees would either encounter the lady in white in the rooms or walking down the hallways. Mm -hmm. And oh. when not seen, you would be able to feel her presence or smell a lady's perfume in the area. The end. <laughs> that is a very chilling tale. One that I am 85% sure we have told before. Allow me to do a different <laughs> one instead. But it could be... Either that we have told it before, <laughs> or that it just sounds like most ghost stories. <laughs> the Lady in White is a recurring figure, and I will haunted say, hotels but I will are almost always the same stories. Allow me to do one that is I'm seeing as one sentence long, right. just in case, just to do due diligence. San German Bulldog Cove. No capitals. It has been proven by local residents that if in this place you call Edgard of Bull, <laughs> three raging bulldogs with blood flowing through their eyes will follow you up to they catch you or you lose them. It is said that if you look into the dog's eyes, you will be burned alive. Oh, God. That is a with terrifying tale. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight... Exclamation points. I guess I could have yelled that much, much, much louder. 
we get the point, I think. But I think you you gave. Jake, would you care to spin your wheel? I, I think I will. I also want to point out that uh, the idea of blood flowing through eyes is terrifying because blood cannot be found inside of normal eyes. That is because you've never been so mad. That's right. As three raging bulldogs. Side note, um, since you first decided to just spin the wheel and we made the decision to spin the respective wheels we have, uh, I don't know where the coin is anymore. I don't see it anymore. So I guess this was the right decision. It seems to be okay. I'm I'll a just, little bit frightened. I, um, yeah, sorry. Right. I'm just going to go over to the wheel. I don't have quite a long cord, so I'm just going to kind of set this here and I'll just, I'm going to reach. Okay, I'm going to hold the, the as I recall, your cord is only 200 feet long. Yeah, I'm going to hold the microphone in one hand. I'm going to reach over with the other hand and try and reach the wheel. Ooh, how cavalier. Okay. Wow. Pretty good spin. You're strong, son. All right, maybe it's just eager to spin. I don't know. It's going and it's landing yeah. on South Dakota. <laughs> oh! What a surprise. All right, let me just head on over to South Dakota here. Uh, Aberdeen, Northern State University, Johnson Fine Arts Center. This is a young building, having only been built in the early 1970s. However, there have been some unexplained occurrences. Occasionally, there can be heard a whistled tune from one of the men's restrooms when there is no one present. Sometimes the lights in the makeup room and costume shop come on or off, depending on how one leaves them. So I guess if you leave them wow. on, they're on. If you leave them off, they're off. I'm not sure. Hey, as they say, as in life in ghosts. <laughs> on rare occasions, phantom keys have been heard jingling in the empty seating area. <laughs> One night in particular, I mean, this was followed up by a loud crash on some platforms set up on stage. One time, a small group of students had a ball of tape thrown at them from nowhere, and the wheelchair lift operated on its own. After dark, when the building is empty... Many students who have passed through the front hallway have expressed an intensely creepy feeling. The need to hurry up and get out of the hallway. Ah, yes. And how frightening is that? Truly, utterly bone-chilling. <laughs> My bones are chilled. Mine are cooling right down as well, and that's <laughs> no small feat because I run warm. And I dare say, that has been... Shadowlands Roulette. <laughs> and now, allow me to jump right into my next segment. Please do. Capsules for the administration of medicine. <laughs> so, Jake, drugs. We all take them. All most the time. Of us, most of us do them. And some of us, if you're asking me, abuse them. <laughs> And early into the Matrix movie, the Keanu Reeves is famously, or perhaps infamously, <laughs> given a choice between taking one of two quote-unquote pills, blue or red, which will dictate his character's future in the narrative. If he takes the blue pill, he remains in the world he has come to know, mm -hmm. comfortable but ignorant. If he's brave enough to take the red pill, he will wake up to the true reality of his existence at the cost of his comfort and safety. Now... It's important to note that The Matrix was not the first piece of media to offer this kind of binary red-blue reality selection process, mm. but it distinguished itself from its predecessors, such as Alice in Wonderland, by presenting the scenario in such a way 
that it stapled itself into the core psychologies of teenaged and 20-something-year-old boys <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> and as was recently brought to my attention by friend and not co-host of the show, Jake, <laughs> getting red-pilled has become a kind of dark and dorky online and cultural meme associated repulsively with hyper-male men's rights and ultra-conservative, read as neo-fascist, mm-hmm. right-wing movements. So, the good grossest. job, The Matrix. It's especially fun, too, considering that the idea of taking the red pill um, was actually meant as a metaphor for kind of an awakening to an identity that the Wachowski siblings were still kind of grappling with before fully right. coming out. Right. And so, therefore, it's basically the opposite of everything Red Pillars Online uh, stand oh. for. <laughs> Go figure. Nothing that toxic cultural trends can't reappropriate mm-hmm. into damaging discourse. Anyway, yep. I'm really here to talk about the history of capsules. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> which are arguably what Keanu was offered and their use in the administration of medicine and other supplements. So... There are two main... I know you've been asking me week after week, why? How many? How many? Please tell me about capsules. I want to know. Tell (laughs) me more about how we get the drug inside the body. When are we going to do the capsule episode? When are we going to do the capsule thing? I know you've been thinking about it. Please do it now. (laughs) I'm finally doing it. We get fan emails all the time. Uh Talk about capsules. Talk about capsules. So shut up, everyone. I'm finally doing it. Here we go. So there are two main types of capsules. Hard-shelled, a.k.a. high fashion, which contain dry, powdered ingredients and are made in two halves, a smaller diameter body that is filled and then sealed with a larger diameter cap. I call these high fashion because they're often vibrantly, even playfully colored. Um, which, when it comes to sensitive and potentially even deadly medications, why the heck not? Yeah. Right? And the other type are the soft-shelled capsules, <laughs> primarily used for oils, active ingredients that are dissolved or suspended in oil, and crab meats. <laughs> Go on. So, we all know this already. Especially Advil, crab meat. <laughs> Advil liquid gels and fish oil supplements. Stop, stop it. You cut it out. You cut that right out. <laughs> you did this to me. <laughs> so, Advil liquid gels and fish oil supplements can seem a bit like de facto components of a functional first world society. But, honestly, how did we get here? Hmm. Well, we can travel back to the pre-trench coat era of the early 1800s when people basically had no other choice than to just gulp down whatever weird medicine they were supposed to be taking at the time. Which I think that was a time when we still believed in the humors, so medicine was a <laughs> yeah. fucked up thing. It was a, it was a transitional phase. Um, this was often, perhaps as a surprise to no one, fucking gross. <laughs> Medicines often tasted weird, had a strange mouthfeel, and you ran the perpetual risk of taking too much. <laughs> you are right there, man. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> the reality of this whole thing <laughs> just crashed in on my brain. 
<laughs> All right. <clears throat> Humanity somehow suffered through until in 1833, Mothis and Dublanc oh. were granted a patent for a method to produce a single piece gelatin capsule that was once filled sealed with an external drop of gelatin solution. So there you go. That was your first capsule. Mothis, you said? Mothis, yes. Almost sounds like Morpheus. Morpheus and Dublanc, which sounds almost like Trinity. (laughs) I was going to say Neo, but either way. (laughs) Uh the process sounds comically inefficient and laborious by today's standards as they would use individual iron molds for oh their manufacture, God. filling each capsule individually with a medicine dropper before sealing them. <laughs> so probably it took a year to, to make each one. <laughs> to make like a single bottle. Um, almost, and this, okay, get a, get a load of this, almost exactly 100 years later. And just 66 short years before a certain movie would be released. Mm-hmm. Detroit-born Robert Polly Scherer, an inventor and capsule fiend of the Polly era. Shore? Polly Shore? Polly uh, Developed a kind of rotary die to produce capsules more rapidly through a process of blow molding. This is also how like plastic water bottles are formed. Huh. Um, so essentially you have a liquefied, superheated plastic... On the end of a blowing device, which then is inserted into a mold, air is blown in, the plastic expands, takes the shape of the mold, bingo. He was just 24 years old, playing around with his rotary die encapsulation machine in a workshop located in the basement of his parents' Detroit home, like I would say we all were at some point. (laughs) And as is charmingly put on DetroitHistorical.org... Scherer's invention transformed the production of soft gelatin capsules used in the pharmaceutical industry into a commercial process that helped to raise worldwide health and nutritional standards. All right. But, of course, the question emerges, was Scherer's invention and the concept of capsules themselves just ideas implanted in our minds by an elaborate system of robots and computers that need our buys review. Scherer's invention revolutionized the pharmaceutical realm of the day and launched his career, allowing him to establish the R.P. Scherer Corporation in 1933, which Mm -hmm. still exists today, or as of the writing of this article. Another 51 years down the road, and by 1984, the firm was the world's largest manufacturer of soft gelatin capsules, which is pretty cool. Mm. But, hold on to your butts, Mm. we need to re-rewind the clocks yet again. While Mothis and Dublanc, a.k.a. Morpheus and Trinity, (laughs) were figuring out early soft gel technology for us pussy-ass Americans, (laughs) James Murdoch of London was busy patenting the harder, meaner, and cooler two-piece telescoping gelatin capsule in 1847. These capsules are so powerful, so capable... (laughs) <laughs> they need to be made in two separate parts by dipping metal pins in the gelling agent solution. Also because they just have to be filled before assembly. <laughs> <laughs> and This episode is can, good, right? Oh, it's great. <laughs> and from what I can tell, t- depending on how many capsules you took, and depending, uh, and from what I can tell... Not terribly much has changed in that basic design ever since. Wow. 
yeah, the 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 two piece hard shell capsule is uh, rocking right along. Um, as with any innovation, capsules were forced to choose between either evolving with the way society was moving or risk being swept into the dustbin of obsolescence. Obviously, copy that I wrote, much as <laughs> humans may be, perhaps already have been, oh. with the increasing surge of AI-based management oh. and regulation. Capsules are no different. Having faced resistance in the 20th and 21st centuries from those becoming concerned of their consumption of animal products. So... We now have vegetable-based capsule technology. And, I mean, that is pretty much that. And I will say that Morpheus should really have called them red and blue capsules rather than pills, <laughs> which are compression extrusions of various, you know, products. That motherfucker. And they were arguably soft-shelled capsules. So, good job, Lana, and good job, Lily. <laughs> Y'all fucked up. And I dare say we pander now. I think we should while we have this machine still hooked up and while it's feeling like just kind of a normal part of our lives. I think we, yeah. can, we can fire up the particular function on the side of the machine here, the pander function, and eh, look it on there already. Mm -hmm. Feeling well the energy of that. So uh, this is the part of the show where we look into our minds and into the computer's consciousness or whatever it is that it actually has. It seems to have access to all sorts of knowledge. And we determine uh, what cryptid what creature what monster in the world our patreon patrons need to look out for mm -hmm. and this week we are thanking ash from austin texas thank you so much ash and ash you need to look out for let's just focus in here together three-headed three -headed frog, frog. <laughs> three-headed frog <laughs> Did take a little while for all the text to read out on uh, on our heads brains. Up we now have, yeah. Um, um, this frog made its first appearance in a 2008 video, which, strangely enough, we're not being given access to right now. But if we can, if we can tap a little deeper. I feel like the computer is having a glitch because I'm seeing what looks to be a thumbnail for a video in my field of view. But I cannot click it correctly. Same. I will say, Ash, be on the lookout for what looks to be three frogs mixed together. Uh huh. And according to this video, it says that it almost has six legs. Uh huh. So there's a possibility that this was three separate frogs someone saw one time. Honestly, if it is that, you have to be truly on guard because the likelihood of running into three separate frogs in one place at any given time is relatively high. As Elon Musk would say, it's a chance of one in billions. Perhaps even two. One of the questions you might have is, why does this frog have three heads? Uh, it's quite unknown. <laughs> what a strange question. But it may be that it had a parasite which caused it to have three heads and nearly six legs. <laughs> nearly six. <laughs> nearly it six. It has five legs for sure. Uh -huh. uh, definitely the five. sixth appendage being somewhere between leg and growth. Mm -hmm. Might walk a bit weird and can't hop so well. And I gotta say, that's literally all the info we have for today. <laughs> so, Ash, thank you so much for donating to the show and helping support us and yes, watch out for frogs. Yes, thank you very frogs. much. Keep your eyes out. They're an apocalyptic component <laughs> in these dark days. That kind of thing could start happening at any moment. Yes. And, and uh, uh, thank you thank all you. for listening so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us for 99 episodes. 
my thrilled. goodness. We never thought we'd get this far. Well, we did, but we hoped we would. But we didn't. Yeah. We, could, we never really pictured how <laughs> we got here faster. This is oh, cool, yeah. guys. This is neat. And honestly, there's only 999,901 uh, episodes to go yeah, so before we're done. Thanks so. for joining us for this first leg. Uh, yeah. Also, thank you, Audrey, for the suggestion. Um, just oh, yeah. This is, this is very much uh, thanks to Audrey. And she had the uh, genius insight. To make the, this yeah. Possible. I Goodbye. think we should probably... Before we go, we should probably <laughs> unplug the machine. We've left it in for oh my God. a solid like hour longer than we ever had before. Oh, so yeah. let's just pull it. Kind of don't want to. Pull it. Uh, okay. It's a little. Boom. It's um. Oh, yours came right out? It. Yeah. Okay. Mine is I having think. a little trouble. It feels um, like it's still in there, though. I yeah. don't know if I'm actually pulling it out. Okay. Oh, okay. I pulled something out. I don't know if it was the wire. <laughs> It's fine, probably. But yes, with the machine semi-unplugged, <laughs> I think there's nothing else to say, but... Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>